following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. You? Doing all right. We haven't talked in a minute. <laughs> good, good pun. Good pun. Uh, so, yeah. I wonder what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, look at that. So this game, Minute, it came out. It's really good. It uh, is very good. Yeah, it's made by four collaborators. Uh, and They seem like small just, dudes. Yeah, and, and uh, wanted to, to talk about it with one of the creators. Uh, his name is... Jan Willem Nyman, uh, he is actually a co-founder of Lambier with Rami Ismail, who created Nuclear Throne. Uh, and yeah, I want we're going to talk names. to him. I'm going to name all of my sons all their names. <laughs> <laughs> how, how was your experience playing Minute? It's uh, really great. It's uh, I'm a big fan of Majora's Mask in this game. Uh, every 60 seconds you die, which is totally up my alley. Yeah, just like yeah, we're just gonna kill you every sixty seconds. Uh, but it's cool. It looks like Link's Awakening, and it gets compared to that a lot. But it's more like a old school adventure game. It's it's a lot more accessible than that. But uh, you know, you just uh, uh venture around the world. You find these little tiny details and little puzzles in the environment. Uh, it's really co- like it's not colorful. It's a it's a monochromatic, but it has a lot of charm and co- the characters are very colorful. And it's yeah, it, it's crazy how much uh, is packed into this uh, kind of relatively small package and uh, I was really interested in learning about its development and uh, and uh, uh, about the creators. Yeah, it had the perfect sort of mimetic concept to kind of pull me in when I first heard about it and actually diving in and seeing the beauty of So for me, I love, there's nothing I love more than limitations. I feel like limitations make us more creative when we make stuff and limitations also make us more creative when we're like interacting like with a, with a space, you know? Um, so for one, having the time limit, like that was really cool. But then also I think um, I, I think what really did it for me wasn't necessarily the time limit as much as it was uh, the repetition. So you're constantly dying. And there's something about that and even just being able to initiate your own death instantly that puts you in a place where um, you're constantly like puzzles take on a new form. And playing with somebody else even takes on a new form, like having a second brain in the room. It's it's a very unique experience when you're playing through something and you're like, what am I supposed to do? And so I was like, oh, I think, you're, I think after seeing this 20 times, you're supposed to do it. There, there's, there's, there's a really kind of uh, – it's like a time release capsule. I, I, really, I, I really enjoy um, – I really enjoyed my time with it. Um, yeah, so it does I, feel I, I think like- – I have a bunch of questions that we need to ask our friend. Yes. So let's get into that. We're going to talk to Jan Willem. But first, a quick break. Taking a moment to thank our sponsors, Veridesk, Rocket Mortgage, and ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show. With us now is Jan Willem Nyman who is the co-founder of Lambia with Rami Ismail and the co-creator of Minute. Thanks for uh, joining us. Hey there. Thanks for having me. 
No problem. So yeah, like minute is out. How's it feel to actually uh, get it out there finally? Uh, it still feels uh, a little bit surreal. Like the launch has been going super well. Uh, reception's been amazing. So we're all kind of sitting here waiting for the moment until everybody kind of like hey just kidding we actually don't like your game you know like <laughs> it's been really overwhelming and, and lovely yeah well it's got to that's has to feel good because what how, how long was the development for the game uh it's been a, a little bit over a year it's uh, been for the four of us me together with katie Carlos, dominic johan and yukio kalio um katie and i started working on it a bit over a year ago and then we got the team involved and basically, yeah, spent like a really laid back, easygoing year working on it. So it's been it's been a really smooth process, actually, relatively for, for a video game. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, you guys are collaborators. You didn't start a new studio for this. Like, was that like a conscious decision? Was it more like oh, we know each other, kind of want to keep it laid back and just uh, collaborate on this uh, on this project? Yeah, totally. For us all, the intention was kind of to do this one, one-shot game where we all came together to make one project, and we all came from larger projects. Like Kitty worked as a producer on Horizon Zero Dawn. I had just finished Nuclear Throne. Uh, Dom works on wild VR stuff, like uh, accounting VR. Yukio also worked on Nuclear Throne. So we all decided to kind of come together for this one project and make something really like. Uh, small and friendly and you know kind of this charming little game and spend a lot of love and, and detail on it and uh, we yeah we kind of decided not to have a team name or anything and just have all four of our names there because we're the four people who who made this this thing it's also like I, I don't know I feel like uh, with indie games you definitely have like the creator themselves have a very prominent visible identity and it's kind of cool that you just have like your four twitter accounts right there yeah no, we we really love it and like we've been like it's so easy in uh games to give one person all the credit like you very often see interviews for huge games that make it seem like the game was made by one person and we all kind of yeah. hate that and and with this game we just want to show like hey you know like this is what we did this is how we did it and being completely open about that and it, I, I think it's like it's good towards the people who play because they can put a face on the people who've made it, but also for us because we can just show like this is who we are, this is the stuff we made. Yeah, that, that that's super true. There, there always tends to be, especially in journalism, a bit of an auteur treatment that kind of uh, throws a little bit of shade at all the different people that threw in and contributed innovative ideas. It, it was really cool kind of checking out the game and then it's sort of being humanized in a more authentic way and kind of seeing, I don't know, kind of scrolling through all the different work that you guys are, are working on and just having a, a flood of questions about um, how an idea of this even came to mind, like making the association between interacting with this game and then interacting with something like Horizon Zero Dawn. I, I'm curious to know um, what what was sort of the origin story of the concept of, of a title like this? Like did kind of one person come to the table um, with something and you guys mm-hmm. built off of it or you guys maybe it was more formalized right so so back in uh, 2012 Kitty and I joined the Adventure Time Game Jam and it was a super cool thing because Cartoon Network actually allowed people to like take the Adventure Time IP and make tiny games with it 
And Kitty and I, um, we really love that show. And we especially like how every episode is so different. It's a completely different adventure. So we made a really simple game for that. That was basically whatever direction you head in, there's like one minute of adventure waiting for you. Um, and the game was really small, uh, but we actually ended up winning the the game jam. We The award was a, a, a crossbow made by a friend of Richard Garriott, like the, the Ultima creator. And he also is like an astronaut, like this amazing person. He's like, hey, here you have a real crossbow that my friend who is a weaponsmith made. It's like a very surreal uh, moment for us. And then years later, Kitty and I are like, hey, we're still thinking about this adventure minute game. Like maybe we should turn it into a full project, like like make a, a full game out of it. And we started uh, messing around with that. We Kitty um, kind of figured out the black and white art style very early that, that worked very well. And we decided to pitch it to Devolver Digital, um, which is publishing minute. Um, and we had a very early version. It didn't even have the timer yet. We just told them, hey, imagine there's a timer in the corner. You know, every 60 seconds you die. That's the concept. And they basically said right away, like, all right, let's do it. So then we had ourselves with this very, very early prototype and a, a game to make. So we got Yukio involved. We got Dami involved. And um, you know, now it's a bit over a year later and the game's out. Yeah, this is your third game with Devolver, right? Uh, yeah, like we did with Flambear, we uh, did the Serious Sam, the Random Encounter, which is like a tie-in for the launch of Serious Sam 3. And then we also did Luftrisers. Yeah, that's pretty... That's cool. I mean, is that, is that, usual, is that a typical where you get uh, as early with a, with a publisher? Um, no, I, I don't think it's typical. I also think Kitty and I didn't really intend to do like a, a proper pitch that early. We just ended up seeing them at GDC and kind of being like, hey, can we show you a game? And we, you know, nothing official about it, but basically we showed that and they were ready to start drafting contracts right away. So it was kind of like... Oh, wow. Uh, That's great. It was a great opportunity for us. Like we took some time to think about it and we're like, all right, like... As a as an indie, I'm always super wary of publishers. I'm always looking for dirt on them, you know. Like I don't trust them naturally. And with the Volver, <laughs> like I've never found that dirt. They've always been great to work with. So for us, it was kind of a no-brainer to to deal with that. And it helped take a lot of pressure off the project because we didn't have to personally do like all the marketing and things like that. You know, figuring out porting and trailers. Like the Volver's been an awesome help taking care of everything that's that's not just making the game. That's righteous. It's great having a team that you can trust. If you're comfortable with us sort of peeking behind the curtain a little bit, I, I am curious to know in this in the sort of duration of development of this idea, um, kind of before and after, I'm curious to know what a what a typical week would sort of look like in a sense that would did did putting the, this game together require uh, everybody's full attention? Was it sort of like a situation where you set, like, I guess, sustenance aside so that you can kind of give it, a, like, uh, 100% of your time, or are you sort of balancing it while working on other things? So uh, both Yukio and Dom have been working on other projects at the site as well. Like, Dom is co-founder of Kraus, 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 who make uh, VR games. Like, they just did a game with the creator of uh, Rick and Morty as well. Um, so he, he was busy doing stuff like that every now and then. And Yukio 
I think he just uh, also finished the soundtrack for a game from uh, Q Games, like Pixel Junk Monsters 2. And then uh, Kitty and I were kind of full-time on Minute. Um, but in, in the end, like we're all mostly working remotely and just uh, we have very clear responsibilities. We know what needs to get done. And then every now and then some kind of deadline came up, like we were demoing the game at E3 or something like that, which kind of made us all focus our powers and work, you know, together super well. And then we were off again doing our own things, working on Minute a little bit. Like, we just wanted to make sure that it was a very um, smooth and laid back process. So really, I think it kind of shows in the game where because you die every minute, it's kind of a little bit stressful. But in the end, there's always tomorrow. You can always try again the next run, which was also kind of our yeah. philosophy for the game. Like we never wanted to be stressed out working it. We didn't want to crunch. We just kind of tried to make something nice and have a nice process making it. So, so you meant you mentioned you guys working remotely. Um, how? What? Which? What are the respective areas that each of you guys are from? Like, how far are you guys from each other? Um, so Kitty and I are, are nomadic. We've been traveling for the last two years or so. So, oh wow! Um, like literally, a lot of a lot a lot of the locations in Minute are just inspired by places we've visited. Um, so it's really like, <laughs> that's all amazing. Over the world. And then uh, Dom is in Berlin, and you guys in Helsinki. Wow! How did you guys all? That's meet? very spread out. Yeah, how did you meet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, how we all met? Um, Kitty and I met in the Dutch Game Garden, which is like a co-working space in the Netherlands. Uh, a long time ago, like Kitty was working for Control Magazine, which is like the Dutch games industry magazine which writes for the games industry so it's like um uh i'm not sure what the english word is but it's like an industry magazine i guess and then uh, i just started glamour back then so that's when we met and i think we met dom on a bus on the way leaving an event in berlin he was going back to hamburg where he lived back then and then Yukio and I also go way back because Yukio also worked on like Luftrauser, Sneak Your Throne, on the music for a lot of uh, Lambert games. And uh, for a minute, Yukio saw uh, Kitty and I were like showing a really old early demo to him and he was like, I really want to make the music for this. So we were just like, hell yeah, let's, let's go with it. That's great. Can you talk about like the community and like of game development in the Netherlands? Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the 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 indie scene, to call it that, in the Netherlands is quite. Uh, it's been getting really big and diverse. There's all kinds of stuff going on. We we traditionally have like one huge studio, which is Guerrilla Games. They make like Horizon Zero Dawn, Killzone, all that stuff, and they employ like 200 people, 300 people, something like that. And then there's a lot of indie studios, which mostly come just from students starting their own stuff and then either failing or, you know, making cool stuff. Um, so, and, and the country is very small. Like in the Netherlands, from wherever you are, in like three hours, you can either be uh, at the border or in the sea, you know, like it's a tiny country. Wow. So the whole country's community can basically come together to, you know, get some drinks for a night or whatever. So... Uh, Kitty and I actually used to organize indie meetups in Utrecht where we would just, you know, take over a bar, talk about games, like really low-key stuff. Um, 
And then now there's cool young upcoming uh, creators like Sock Pop Collective are doing lots of really cool stuff. Like it, it also uh, uh, Adrian de Jong who made Hidden Folks is in the Netherlands. He's doing like super creative stuff. Um, like it's a really healthy scene, I think. Like there's so much going on. Uh, and it's getting more and more diverse, which is really exciting, you know, like people are really finding their own voices and, and making stuff with that. Yeah. Is it, do you ever feel like, I guess, uh, because games are very, like, they're very accessible, but that means, like, everyone can, uh, you know, it's a kind of like a, a global thing. You don't have to be, like, in L.A. if you want, like, if you want to make a movie, you should be in mm. L.A. kind of thing, whereas games, it feels like it's more spread out global is there like disadvantages to that where you feel isolated or is it that i I guess that's why you're putting on these these events in the netherlands to like bring people together um i don't like i don't know like like nowadays it feels like there are really game developers anywhere in the world like wherever you go you can like go on twitter and like hey who's anyone here who wants to meet up you know like it's a really welcoming community like that's something i love about indie games it's like everybody feels like they're all in the same boat and they all are super open with sharing their work and their techniques and everything like it doesn't feel like we're competitors you know so it's a really lovely uh scene really worldwide then i mean the internet makes a lot of stuff uh easier but still like worldwide if you look for a lot of people it's still way harder than people based in like Europe or the US where you know going to an event is just a basically a a really short flight away or in your town like um, even some communities like people in South Africa they're not they can't upload their games to like the Google store because Google won't pay them in South Africa you know there's so many hurdles oh wow uh, for people around the world Um, like if you just Look at GDC in uh, San Francisco, which is like the biggest games conference for for the industry, I think. Like just going there uh, from anywhere that's not the US or Europe is so wildly expensive, especially if you compare it to like the the monthly salary of, of, of different places, you know, like the average salary. So there's still a lot of like inequality and hurdles, even though most of it's in on the internet i still feel like i've had a huge advantage for just you know being born in the netherlands and we'll be right back after this quick break traditional static offices are a thing of the past today companies and employees want an active workspace veradesk helps people reimagine their office design being more active at work like standing more and sitting less can help improve your health by boosting energy and productivity Veradesk Active Workspace solutions make it easy to encourage more movement in a day. The new ProDesk 60 electric standing desk is the cornerstone of the active office. It's designed with commercial-grade materials, stable at any height, and fully assembled in under five minutes. Plus, all Veradesk products are made to last. They're also simple to set up and move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. Check out Veradesk products, including the new ProDesk 60 electric, risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns. Learn more at veradesk.com slash Forbes. That's V-A-R-I desk.com slash Forbes. And there's ZipRecruiter. Hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter knew that there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies the people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. 
These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you're a game developer with a really cool idea um, and you live in Canada, you have a couple of things going for you. You have single-payer healthcare and you also have um, a strangely supportive government that um, – mm. On occasion, is on record for you know passing out grants for things getting done within the context of um, in the context of game development. I'm curious to know uh, what some of those advantages look like um, in the Netherlands, uh, particularly in comparison to America, since we have a a a lot of people in podcast land listening right now, probably from the states. Right. Yeah. So I think for me, the biggest advantage, uh, other than like we have really solid healthcare and things like that, but like education in the Netherlands uh, is really affordable compared to the US like um, as a student you get uh, government funding if you're like if you don't make over a certain amount and most students don't make anything so like I I got uh, 500 euros a month from the government back then to pay for like my rent and my school then school is super cheap Um, if you uh, the the government money is actually a loan, but if you finish your education, you don't have to pay it back. So that's like one of the government systems that actually got phased out recently because of, uh, you know, like horrible election results. But that doesn't exist anymore. But that's an advantage I had. And then education in general is really cheap. Like nobody in the Netherlands will come out of university with a huge debt like that's just not a a thing you might have to pay back like a couple thousand euros but it's never hundreds of thousands you know so it's just a very different um social system so i think that's a huge advantage um we have for sure then that's a really good advantage yeah (laughs) yeah no we just have a good like uh you know social health care cheap education we pay a lot of taxes uh, but like personally, I'm I'm really fine with that. I'd rather, you know, pay 51 percent in taxes and make sure everybody has a good time than get really rich while my country is going to shit. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel that. <laughs> it is kind of cool that um, like Kitty went and worked on Horizon Zero Dawn and then came back and like had this collaboration for this game. Like, can you talk about how everyone had kind of like a different background uh, going into this? And um, I don't know, like what, what was, what was the vibe with that? Like, were you learning so much more because everyone had kind of like a different professional background? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I don't know, the thing I really uh, love about Kitty, I don't know if I'm quoting her correctly, but she always says like the best way to get to know an industry is like, trying out all the different roles, seeing it from all the different perspectives. So she's like worked in a, in a really wide array of different jobs in the games industry. Like she started out um, working in like press, working for a control magazine. Um, 
Then she's also done like uh, marketing and PR for uh, another indie game called Action Hank. Then, then she worked as a producer on, you know, Horizon Zero Dawn, and now she's like an artist and a designer on on Minute. And I don't know, she's like this kind of um, wizard, I guess is the word, who can just take on any <laughs> job and put herself in that position, which also is really nice because she kind of understands the mentality of the other team members. So that's been really cool. And then Yukio is just uh, like. Uh, we go ba- way back. We we met, I think, on some like internet forum when we were teenagers, basically. And I I saw it because he was like user number five hundred, and there was a post about it. I was like, whoa, this this guy. And then we just kept talking. And he was always messing around with music, but never professionally. He was actually a graphic designer. And then his music just kept getting better and better, and that just rolled into this. Uh, now he's doing amazing stuff for all kinds of indie games. He also worked on Celeste that came out uh, earlier this year. It's been a huge success. So for me, uh, I don't know, Yukio is just always amazing to work with. And Minute is actually the first game and probably the last game ever he's had where he also did all the sound design, so not just music. So it has this really unique sound to it. Um, and then Dom also is just an amazing like 2D artist who's been helping Kitty out with the art uh, and also doing a lot of animation, which is something none of us knew that he's actually really good at animation. He's this kind of old school cartoon style thing. Like a minute you, like all the NPCs have like really subtle, tiny idle animations and things like that. That's all Dom's magic. That he That's amazing. Up. So we all kind of helped uh, add little layers of detail in our own ways to the game. Um, so we wanted to make a really dense, tiny world so so i don't know we just already like if any of the team members hadn't worked on minute it wouldn't be the same game so that feels really lovely to me what changed like the most during development or did you already like did you have like a kind of concrete concept and you knew exactly where it was going to go so so we had the one minute loop right from the start we knew that we wanted to make a game where every puzzle was unique, every screen had some kind of secret, but like the shape of the world and the size of the world, we didn't really know at first, so that kind of grew organically. And I think one of the biggest uh, things Kitty and I talked about is that Kitty didn't expect the game to become this big, and I didn't expect the game to become this detailed. So that, for both of us, like we ended up having to do more work than we expected, but also... In the end, we ended up with a bigger and more detailed game than we expected. So that has been uh, one of the most challenging things is kind of dealing with that scope and, you know, trying to keep it focused and also making sure that people aren't done with the game in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You said you didn't have a uh, crunch for the development of this. Like, is that something I'm sure you've gone through? Uh, crunch before do you think that's you know people say like oh it's necessary to to make games uh to to have that but i don't know like how do you feel about that is it unnecessary is it yeah like like i like it's i don't know if it's like necessary is a a kind of a different a, a difficult word here because the main fact is it's extremely unhealthy and bad for the team like you might I don't know, have a bigger game, but you're going to have a, a, a dead team member, basically, or, or close to death, you know? So it's kind of, the the industry has got this kind of system going where they take young 
people who are excited to be working in games. Totally fair. Years later, totally, they're yeah. kind of an empty husk uh, because they just gave so much and worked worked so many weekends. And that's like, like where are all the you know people who were working on games in the 80s 90s like there's a few of them around but like so many people quit and like you lose so much knowledge and experience as well because of that and it's just this shitty grinder so with minute we just said we're not doing that like personally like i've i've been burned out a few times working on previous projects just because like the moment you're your own boss you kind of feel like hey i can make my own hours now but you end up working yeah. really horrible hours because everything suddenly is your own responsibility so minute has been for ourselves as yeah. well to test like hey can we work in a way that's healthy and like now the game is out and i feel kind of great which is amazing like i haven't yeah. had that before previously when a game came out i was exhausted you know so i feel as, as a whole industry with games we just need to move forward and like start taking care of those unhealthy habits and actually create an industry where people um, have lives and get paid fairly, you know? I'm curious to know if sort of the, uh, I guess the sort of conversations around the process have, I don't know, changed at all or gotten better. I, I think so. Like as, at least amongst indies, I see, that, you know, having worked really hard is seen less and less as a badge of pride and people are kind of starting to realize that yeah. working super hard is not necessarily a good thing. Um, like, like, you see so many people struggling with, like, just being burnt out or general, like, health problems from just working so much and kind of getting their whole uh, identity and their self-worth from their kind of productivity and... I feel like people are getting better at that. And then also in like AAA and like bigger studios, I feel like the awareness is growing, but still there are so many bad practices, like so many, so much overwork, so many people doing unpaid overwork. Um, so there's like a long way to go. This GDC, uh, actually you saw like some people starting to call for like uh, unionization and things like that. So there is like some, there is some movement going and there is some noise being made. I just hope that like in 10 years, uh, looking back at, at or looking at the industry then that, you know, crunch is, is something that doesn't yeah. happen anymore in general because it, it shouldn't. Like it's just bad planning yeah. and it doesn't make better games. It's also, I guess, like right now in the industry, we have this shift towards... Um, live services and also just like a lot of patching after release and like i think with like stardew valley and shovel knight the designers said like yeah we rushed to get it done but then we're still on the hook to you know make more content and and patch and and change things after release after you like this whole build-up of um, crunching and that was another thing like i think uh, the for honor developers talked about that um in the triple a sense where they're crunching to get this game done, but they release it and the team doesn't feel different because they're still rushing to fix things that, you know, because once you release a game, especially like a live service one, everything's going to be broken by all the players within the first yeah. day. So there's also that aspect where nothing feels like it changed, I guess, after you just went through kind of hell. Yeah, that's horrible. Like, I, I'm. With Nuclear Throne, we did uh, weekly updates for the early access process. And in hindsight, that was such a, a bad idea because you can't just 
take a week off. You you just kind of made this promise. You have to stick with it. Um, and you just like it, it's the kind of development. Like if something happens, like if you you you're sick or like something in life happens, then suddenly you can handle with it. And I feel like a lot of uh, games industry is kind of like assuming everything goes well and but everything always goes wrong right like things happen and even this there's this kind of strive for perfection or the idea that working really hard uh, results in bigger games or better games um, but every every time it happens over and over again like people end up screwing themselves basically um, so yeah it, it it sucks like even now like we're fixing bugs you know we're doing uh working on little things for minutes still there's lots of emails and, and stuff to go through like there's no moment that you're off the hook it just kind of slowly fades out over a long time and people work in a way expecting that like they'll be off the hook one moment but that that just doesn't exist mm -hmm. yeah i guess like uh, what people say is like um you go through like a two or three year dev cycle and like halfway through you've made like a lot of prototypes and like you've created a bunch of things but like all of a sudden you find that you need to like this isn't working this thing we prototyped and uh we promised this deadline right now it's not working so we have to like just change everything like yeah. is that a factor is that something that like i guess it didn't really pop up in in minute because you had a prototype you were very happy with before you even began development earnest right yeah, but but even then with Minute where we had kind of a clear vision, there's like, if you look at the game's files right now, like half of it is just things we had to scrap, things that didn't work out, you know. Um, so in the end, like even the simplest things in, in in games, you always run into bugs. There will always be something broken. Like, I, I, like games are such a detailed, complex uh, piece of media. Like there's so many things that depend on each other that... No matter how simple something sees when you think of or seems when you think of it, it's always way more complex. Like you might be wanting to fix a small detail, and suddenly you know the other half of the game breaks. Like that's just how it goes. Like there's so much comes into making even the simplest things, and even people making games just forget about that. Like I, I fall into this trap all the time um i think it's why crunch exists because people can't plan for games properly almost nobody can because it always takes longer than you think and if you account for the time it will take extra then it will take longer than that you know it's kind of this this thing that's really hard to plan for and we there's almost nobody in the games industry who is actually good at, at planning that which is kind of horrible so like i'm curious because um Vlambeer had some big successes a few years ago, but like, can you compare like the indie scene a few years ago compared to like now? Like, like how much has changed? I know like a big conversation going on right now is like when the the water, uh, where the water tastes like wine, that came out and mm. didn't do as well as the developer was hoping for. And this is a developer that worked on Gone Home that came out five years ago and did really well. And it's like, yeah, but you can't really compare the two because five years is an eternity in indie development. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so so with uh, Vlambeer, when we started out, we released Super Great Box for free. And that was kind of our business card to the world. We were like, hey, we can make games. Um, pay attention to us. And that game blew up. Like People loved it. Lots of people played it. 
Um, and that kind of gave us an audience to start working on paid projects and making money with our games. If we release Super Great Box today, nobody would see it, nobody would play it, and uh, Vlambeer probably wouldn't ever lift off the ground. So, the you know people have been talking about the indie apocalypse. Um, you know there are so many games releasing nowadays, and the problem is not that there are so many games, um, but they're all really good. Like there's great games releasing every day because uh, making games has been becoming more and more accessible. Uh, the tools are becoming cheaper. You know, uh, putting a game on Xbox doesn't cost ten thousand dollars anymore for every time you want to go through certification. There's all these things that have become more and more accessible. Um, and, you know, people are making amazing stuff. Like, the games nowadays are way better than the games when indie games started out, you know? So, in a way, that's a super good thing. Uh, like, that's awesome. There's so much more diverse content. There's so many... Uh, there's so much creative work. There's so much beautiful stuff out there. Um but it's harder to make money off it. Like, if you want to do this for a living, then you need to be really lucky or know exactly what you're doing. But knowing what you're doing changes every year. Like, the market changes, the industry changes. So it's just rough. Like, I, I'm really lucky that I don't have to start out now as a, you know, young indie starting a studio because, you know, it, it's, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's like a lot of it, is like Flambeer itself has an identifiable brand, like Devolver is an identifiable brand. Is that something that like is now like a super big advantage that you were able to establish that before a rush of games came on Steam and there's a gazillion studios now? Yeah, I think it is definitely an advantage. Like Rami and I, uh, from the start, always decided to put the Flambeer marketing on Flambeer and not on the separate game titles. So people who liked our previous work will also check out our other work. So we kind of build up uh, a fan base that, you know, doesn't necessarily... They're not necessarily just fans of a game, they're fans of Lambert. And that's, you know, we help build us up. And, you know, we're kind of, I guess, this brand based on the company instead of on, on the projects. Um, so that was a really good move in hindsight, you know. Like the way the market changed, and also we're probably going back to doing uh, cool small Flamberry games in the near future. So that's uh, going to be really interesting to see how that works out. Yeah. Do you think that's is there more interest? I guess in like seeking out publishers because of that. Um. I'm not. I'm not sure. Like I. I think a lot of people are basically a bit uh, looking for some sort of guidance or help or, or any bit of like a boost they can get and they think they can get that from publishers but I'm not sure that most people, most publishers can deliver on that. You know, like even even working with Devolver, you know, it's still a, a big risk to, to make a game. Like you never know if people will like it, if they will buy it. Um, so I don't know, like it, it, there's definitely a lot more small indie publishers popping up um but i think the ones that are like solid you can probably count on one hand do you think well you mentioned uh um indie like i guess is there like a a few years ago like i think like peter molyneux or someone said that like indie development is a 
a bubble ready to burst or something, which seems it still seems kind of ridiculous. But um, do you think it is like uh, where the there was like very high highs with any development? Are they just more like normalizing a little bit now? It's not like a bubble's bursting, but it's just like this is becoming lower to the ground, not as you know. Yeah, oh, totally. if you put out a game, you're going to make a million dollars, kind of thing. Yeah, I think also like the reality is kind of catching up with the promise, you know, because like back in the day, if you put your game on Xbox Live Arcade, you and you know there was a chance you would be a bil- a millionaire, you know, um, that just doesn't really exist anymore. Um, so in a way, I think a lot of people kind of saw that promise, you know, and they were like, oh, I'm gonna make games, and then it turned out to be way harder than they expected. So I'm I don't know, I'm I'm still kind of expecting kind of a return to more like hobbyists uh, being around. So people deciding like, I love making games, but it's not going to be yeah. my my day job. Yeah. Um, and it's probably so, more feasible now just because there are uh, so many uh, YouTube University, there are so many tools now, um, like open tools and tutorials and stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff I'm seeing a lot more, people being more open about their process sharing resources, which is probably, would you mm-hmm. say, the, the, the better end of this sort of accessibility. Yeah, and, honestly, and like I think it's, it's awesome that there are so many games coming out. Like I don't see competition as a, a bad thing or something. It's just cool that more and more diverse uh, voices are getting a, a chance. And that like, I want to play those games that are made by like uh, someone who's, who's, I don't know, you know, working in an, in a restaurant and who makes games about their experience at night or something, you know, I want to play those things. I'm, I'm not just interested in, you know, the big super polished uh, high quality indie games or like, you know, so, so it's really exciting to me. It's just like as a business, it's harder, but, but as an art form, it's better than ever. That's actually, that actually is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice optimistic note. Uh, that we <laughs> to end on since we were going a little dour there. Uh, cool. Sorry for all the depressing business talk, but I guess <laughs> it needs to happen. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Good talking to y'all. Up next, Paul Tassi and Eric Kane talk about Ready Player One and why it worked so well as a film, even if the VR technology in the movie is a little more than a pipe dream. But first, a quick break. Support for the Forbes Overworld podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Hi, I'm Eric Kane. And I'm Paul Tassi. We are going to talk about the uh, the big 
controversial movie, Ready Player One, uh, that Steven Spielberg just just made, just came hit theaters. I saw it last night. I think you saw it, Paul, uh, over the weekend. Yeah, I saw it opening weekend. Okay, um, I really enjoyed it. I, I came in pretty blind. I, I kind of knew the basic premise, but I never read the book. Um, and I knew that there's been a lot of kind of weird controversy, like how, I don't know, some people are saying it's like the nerds, Black Panther or something. I don't know. A lot yeah, of Someone very dumb said that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, I've, I've seen a lot of articles where people are, people are writing that it's like the, the, the male nerds movie at the expense of female characters. And I, I walked away from the movie thinking that that was a very strange line of criticism since... There were awesome female characters in the movie. Um, some of the most important characters, like H and Artemis, are are girls. <laughs> yeah, and it's really a very like diverse and sort of go team go. You know, di- there's Asian, black, and white characters. There's uh, boys and girls. There's you know they're all working together against the sort of the corporate overlord bad guys. So I, I don't really understand that that line of criticism at all. Yeah, I didn't hear too much of that criticism. I mean, maybe just kind of on the fringes on Twitter like you normally do. But I felt like in the end, once the movie actually came out, it wasn't really as controversial as it seemed like it was going to be um, when it was first kind of coming out and being... um, Because, you know, the book is is very hotly debated among, like, nerd circles for for various reasons and uh, kind of, like, overloading the nostalgia. But I I don't know. The the movie seems like it's being pretty well received by both critics and audiences. And that whatever controversy there was, I haven't seen really all that much of it is as much as I thought there was going to be because it's just kind of a fun action movie (laughs) and there's not really, I don't know that much to hyper analyze about it. Um, And I think that's, you know, a lot of credit to Spielberg, but even credit to Ernie Klein who kind of rewrote most of his own book (laughs) so it can better fit into movie form, which I thought he did. Did did. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, He he co-wrote the screenplay. Um, I'm going to be difficult. (laughs) Yeah, that would be, I can't even imagine doing that. Like how to, kind of totally just cut huge sections from your book and rewrite stuff. But uh, I felt like he did a good job. Like one thing that happened where he, he redid or somebody redid, whether it was Spielberg or him or whoever, kind of both of the two first key quests where he like the, this exciting action race was like not really a thing. And it was kind of a more low key find this thing in a cave thing, which wouldn't have really played out well on screen. Yeah. Uh, and then the whole Shining sequence was instead a reenactment of war games, which, again, I don't think would have connected with as many <laughs> a, a wider selection oh, yeah. of audiences. I mean, those are two of the best scenes in the movie. The The race was great fun and and f- figuring out how to, you know, to, to drive backwards was a really uh, an entertaining little puzzle. Uh yeah, and then, then then I loved the shining sequence. That was just brilliant. Yeah, that made the movie. It's hard to imagine oh, the movie. God, it was so hilarious. It. it was so good because it was it was not only just like well done with the filming and like how it blended like old footage and like the actual yeah. actual sets and everything, but then you had H kind of like acting out the movie, having never seen it, <laughs> where yeah. the audience knows what's coming, but then she's like, "Oh, what's <laughs> constantly being surprised by horrifying things." And at this point, H is still, for the audience, is still a big, you know, big burly, like, tough guy, you know, <laughs> which makes it even funnier, like, to, to watch him freak out, because at, at, at that point, she's a him. But, uh, yeah, I loved that. I, I didn't, you know, of course, not having read the book, I don't know the changes, but uh, I was just entertained thoroughly throughout. I, I from, from start to finish, I thought it was really good. I, th- I think there were a couple moments that weren't as quite, there were just a couple little tiny things, and I'm really nitpicking with those, but, like... There's the sequence where they trick uh, 
is it Sorrento? Yeah. Uh, they trick him. They they pull him out of his uh, his v- VR and into their little mock room, his mock office. And uh, it's pretty obvious what they've done as soon as they walk outside, like walk outside the office. Mm-hmm. But but uh, the main character still, or Percival still explains everything that they did really, really on the <laughs> nose for the audience. And I'm like, wait a minute, you don't have to say all that. There's just a couple things like that in there that I thought probably could have been done better. But overall, I don't know. I just I thought it was just yeah, good. Some of the pacing fun. is weird. Like one complaint I, I I heard was the whole love story. Like he essentially says he loves her on like their first date. Yeah. <laughs> which doesn't yeah, really weird. line up with the timeline. Like because the whole, the whole movie seems like it takes place in like four days, which I don't yeah. know if it's even if it's supposed to, to do that. I don't think it actually is. But that's how it comes across. So a lot of the developments can feel a little rushed. And I think there could have just been, I don't know, even one or two kind of montage scenes where, you know, they're training to build up gear, like find more clues or whatever, but it all seems like it happens crazily fast, which is sort Mm -hmm. of odd for pacing. Yeah. That's a really good point. It did seem to go really fast. And and yeah, when he says he loves her, it it felt a little forced because they just had barely even met. (laughs) I mean, I guess guess if I was a dumb teenager, (laughs) yeah, super into a girl, I might say something stupid like that too. So that's not like the worst, but, (laughs) but overall, yeah, in terms of the timeline, it does, it definitely feels fast. Um, And I guess I didn't notice that too much just because I was engaged in the action and the humor. Um, But definitely I think that's, that's very true. Um, one interesting thing that I, I don't know what, I don't know how much of this is in the book, but the, um, the, uh, loyalty centers, is that what they're called? Uh, yeah. Where they, where they, they're basically, um, debtor's prison. Yeah. Which is a really interesting thing I would, did not expect from this movie. That was in the book. Yeah. That's, that's pretty crazy. I, I thought that was maybe the most important part of the whole movie actually, because, you know, the debtor's prison used to be a real thing. And if you had too much debt or couldn't pay it off, you would go to jail and you would work it off. And that's illegal now. We don't have those because they're obviously pretty horrible. I thought that was the most interesting dystopian thing about this, um, that that we would have that blending of debtor's prison and a game. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. I, I want to I think about it more, but it was an interesting... Um, yeah, it's kind of an ultra dark part of a not otherwise very dark movie. But, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, in the books, I feel scary. like you get a more more of a sense of kind of despair in the world because there's more time to build that up, where like everything is just so terrible. Whereas this movie mostly took place in that one spot in Ohio, but I think you you can kind of get a sense of just how messed up everything is um, when you have kind of more time to explain it. And yeah, the the debtor's prison aspect of it, the centers were a really kind of harrowing example of that, and I thought. I thought they were they were good to include that in there. I don't yeah. I don't remember her getting captured and put in prison like that. I feel like they added that, but I, I can't I can't quite remember. It's been a little while since I've read it, but it worked well. It positioned her inside the the bubble basically, yeah. Um, which was a good. I really liked uh, what's his face, the guy with the holes in his chest, um, Iraq. Iraq, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was funny. Um, what's that actor's name from Silicon Valley? Yeah, I can't think of it. He's the guy from Deadpool, also. Yeah, friend. yeah. Um, no, he he was he was good in that role, and I like how they never even ended up showing him. It was just <laughs> kind of implied mm-hmm. that he was kind of like a, you know, shut in loser <laughs> in <Yeah>. real life. 
Yeah, willing to sell out to the IOI. Yeah, that was pretty funny. And then when he explodes and all his <laughs> loot pours out. I have some questions yeah. oh, about this world lovely. where, is it really permadeath, like, everywhere you go? Because that seems a little extreme. <laughs> if it's, like, lose every item you have and, like, all your progress, like, anytime you die in a... <laughs> yeah, I know. I like I, that's what I was only thinking. Only some like... worlds would be like that, like, ultra-dangerous worlds, but... <laughs> <laughs> that to me, I was like, wow, this would not be a very fun game. If anytime you died, you lost all of your stuff, but I, I get how it worked for the, the purposes of the movie. Yeah. I'm thinking of doing a review of the, um, the game, like a mock review. <laughs> Oasis you know, itself, uh, where it's like a million yeah, games. And, yeah. And just, I, I love, I do love how instead of blood, there's coins. I thought that yeah, was that really was clever. Really good. I like that. Uh, it just visually and, and it, it just fit really nicely into the whole, the whole, uh, Halliday, his whole weirdness. He didn't want there to be blood, so he put <laughs> he made him coins. I and I really thought he was an interesting character. How did he compare to the book version? Um, he was very similar. I thought Mark Rylance did a great job uh, in this. Oh, where he, he's not supposed to be like Steve Jobs. Like he's supposed to be kind of as as socially anxious and kind of awkward as he is. So I, I thought they did a, a really good job with him. Like I mean, he was almost hyper exaggerated, but I, I thought. What the way they portrayed him was was good, and, and uh, he made for a really compelling character. Yeah, it occurred to me at some at some point during the movie that it, this is basically just a remake or a new take on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, you've got this crazy kooky guy who built this amazing world where all your heart's desires are, and he's passing it on to whoever can win the game. And he tests them to make sure that they're decent human being, and it's exactly like Willy that Wonka. Makes a lot of sense. They go, yeah, they go into the Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. He's a kooky guy with curly hair that's really weird, and he promises you all your heart desire. And at the end, he makes sure that Charlie's a good dude, and then he gets the factory. Ah, shoot! It's here, here I was trying to give Klein credit for being original with this story, but I never really, I never really caught that. But that is totally accurate. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's. I think I thought of it when really kind of towards the end when when he when he gets there when he gets to the Easter golden egg. egg like, uh-huh. Yeah, there's even a golden, golden egg. Yep. Yeah, and there's actually golden eggs in Willy Wonka too. Um, a lot more teamwork in this in this version. But. Yes. Yeah, and and a lot more violence and. Uh, I don't know. And Willy Wonka was antagonist. <laughs> well, there was. Uh, yeah, in its own, there was drowning. In its own way. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'll write something about that. I, it's you know, I, I I sometimes see these things now. I don't know if it's just because when you write about TV and movies a lot, you start to see parallels a lot. But um, Benny and June, you seen that movie? Uh, no, you're always referencing movies Never I haven't seen. seen. <laughs> oh my gosh, you need to watch that. Well, I'm not going to talk about it then because okay. um, I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything. I feel like I watched it a really uh, long time ago, but I don't remember any of it. So. <laughs> One of Johnny Depp's. Yeah, I know it's, I know it's Johnny sure. Depp, and isn't it, is it Helena Bonham Carter? No, no, just before all his movies had Helena Bonham oh, okay. Carter. In I them. thought it was her. I don't know it's why. Uh, Mary Stuart Masterson from Fried Green Tomatoes. Oh, okay. And um, Aiden Quinn. Gotcha. It's great. Check it out. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah. One, one um, thing I thought that worked really well in the movie that I, I was expecting to be bad was all the CGI action sequences and just kind of the CGI in general. Because, you know, I mean, 70, 80% of the movie is, is CGI. And I felt like that had the potential to go 
very wrong, but I, I think mm-hmm. under Spielberg's direction, like it was all awesome. Like it just made the Oasis look so cool. And like even these incredibly detailed convoluted battle scenes were, were actually not that convoluted. They were actually like pretty clear cut and like action oriented and, and easy to follow along with and very cool. Like using all the different, you know, pieces of the Oasis. And that's one thing that stood out to me that I was, I was expecting it to go wrong almost, but I was surprised by how good of a job they did with it. It was beautiful CGI. I know that I felt the same way when I saw the first trailer. I was like, "Uh oh, like, are we going to have another one of those movies that just leans so heavily on CGI and it doesn't work?" But it really does. It's it's really awesome, All, especially because you, you you see so many familiar things, like the Iron Giant Tracer from Overwatch was in there. Yeah, I, I kept uh, seeing Tracer. I'm like, could they only get the rights to Tracer? Like, <laughs> you would think they could show any other Overwatch character instead of Tracer like seven times, but um, because they had a couple Street Fighter characters, and hilariously, they had a bunch of Battleborn characters. Did they really? Yeah, they did. I, I wrote about this before the movie wow. came out because people were spotting them in the trailer, and like, I think, I, I think the reason they did it was because I don't know, either Battleborn like paid them some money to try and get in there, or their characters just kind of look like generic enough, like fantasy (laughs) characters to like one one of the guys where he's in the car, like who throws him a gun. Like one of those things is from Battleborn. Like there, there's quite, quite a lot of amount. So I thought that was pretty funny. You like have all these like really mainstream references and then you have like Battleborn. I'm like, what? Uh, Is there any destiny in there? I saw Halo. uh, I didn't see destiny. I just saw Halo. That was, that was one part I thought was funny where, you have the kids running in VR headsets on the street as the Spartans. I'm like, you are definitely going to crash into something. <laughs> I know, like, right? There's a reason everyone has omnidirectional treadmills in this <laughs> in this world. <laughs> yeah, that's another interesting thing. Just the uh, um, the application of VR and VR headsets. It's it's interesting to see it like with people walking around and and punching and doing all that stuff. I feel like for a for a world as immersive as the oasis for that kind of game it would have to just be like wires hooked up to your brain and you just do it all with your mind because really honestly like how are they doing all that stuff on on the street or even on an omnidirectional treadmill yeah, there's just, like, there would be too much gear required between the headsets and like these haptic suits and like yeah. the treadmills and like like they're even like suspended on wires in the van i'm like ah, i don't know <laughs> right yeah i just feel like I mean, I get it, 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 but it feels sort of low tech to me because really like when you, when you think about truly futuristic VR immersion, it's, it's like something that plugs into your brain and you can just make yourself, you just go into that world and you're just laying there, you know, you're controlling everything with, with your thoughts. I mean, and that's really one of the big limitations of VR now. I mean, obviously the Oasis is so much more advanced than anything we have, but honestly, like unless we can find a way to to really advance the control system in in our VR we're never going to get there nothing's ever going to be like that yeah the, the movie just kind of made me depressed about the current state of VR like i get that you have to start somewhere and that we're in like the very early stages of this but like man like the actual oasis and the way all that works seems a very long ways away and i guess maybe that's good considering the kind of dystopian aspects of everyone right. getting ultra absorbed into VR is, but yeah, it, I, I read some article before the movie came out that this was going to like spur a bunch of VR sales. And like, I just can't 
can you imagine like someone watching this movie and then having never played VR and then going to do VR? Like, <laughs> I, oh gosh, I, if that yeah. was your expectation, that would be kind of a letdown. Like VR is is very cool. Like the first time you use it, if you've never done VR, and you know it, it can be cool to play regularly. But if you're expecting it to to be like the Oasis or anything like that, there's just no way on earth that we're anywhere close to that. Yeah. No. No. Not even. I mean, that is just so far off. I just can't even imagine it happening, honestly. The limitations of VR are just, they're pretty, they're pretty serious. You just can't create something like that with, with the technology we have. I mean, what we have now is basically a, a glorified viewfinder. You know, remember the viewfinders when, when you were mm-hmm. a kid that put up to your eyes and you kind of scrolled through different pictures? I mean, it's not much different from that, except for that you have an interactive uh, video game instead of just pictures. And it's just having a screen really close to your face and you can, and it, it, it's the image moves around as you move around, but it's really not immersive in the way that something like ready player one is. No, I mean, I yeah, that's probably all get there. The it's just, <laughs> I, it's, it's tough to see. Like I, I, in my lifetime, I'm not even sure where we'll end <laughs> like kind of with the state of VR and I, I you know, they're going to keep working on it, but I would be amazed if we got anywhere close to that, even by the end of my lifetime, people are like, Oh, it's like 10 years away or whatever. I'm like, it is definitely not 10 years away. <laughs> oh no, not even close to 10 years away. And that was 2045 in the, in the movie. And I would say it's not even that I know I, but 2045, I doubt we have something like that. No, certainly not. I, n- nothing to that level. I mean, maybe VR will be more widely adopted by then, but again, it's not that far away and it, it's hard for me to imagine that, <laughs> things would be taken to that degree. I, I mean, I hope so. And I hope we can keep advancing and kind of leaps and bounds. And like, we're already starting to see at least wireless headsets and things that are kind of logical next steps. So, I, you know, hopefully we'll continue in that direction, but it, it does seem like an incredibly long road. Here's another thing I was thinking of. Um, this company, IOI, Innovative Online Industries, is that, I think, what it, yeah. they're trying so hard to find the Easter egg. But like, how is it that in this future there's no other competitor to the Oasis? Like, you know, in our world, once there was one VR headset, there was 17 VR headsets, yeah. right? And, like, where's the other – where's the alternative? I mean, it's it's so monopolistic. Like there's, like, there's, there's probably one... other hardware besides IOI, even if IOI is, like, Apple or Microsoft or whatever. But in terms of the Oasis itself, I mean, that to me felt like the internet where, like, there's not two yeah. internets, you know what I mean? I mean, there's like the dark net or whatever, but, but it, you know, the internet is the internet. And I feel like the Oasis is the Oasis. Right. And like the framework for that is so like, no one would even want to set up, you know, a, a parallel network to that because it would kind of pale to the alternative. Like imagine like a separate internet that only has access to some sites or whatever. I, I just yeah. can't imagine that working. So that's how I view the Oasis personally. Well, I could see that. I just also feel like, well, you know, IOI wanted to take over the Oasis because they wanted to put ads in it, it looked like, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, don't know. I thought That's that was kind of funny where they're like, 80% of your screen can be filled with ads. And that is the reality of it, not. though. Like, the, the, it is implausible to me that the Oasis would essentially be totally free <laughs> and right. you, you don't pay to access it and pay – like, there's – I think there's more in the book about like how much things cost. Like he, Parzival can't even leave his like home school planet because it costs, you know, coins or essentially money to transport between planets. Yeah. So he's like literally stuck there. So even within 
the Oasis, there are still kind of limits, but the movie didn't, I mean, the movie didn't really touch on that or dwell on that. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, well, I guess he, he does go and buy stuff with all the, the reward money he got from getting that key. But yeah, I mean, obviously the Oasis was making good money since, uh, Halliday was worth like half a trillion dollars. Yeah. I mean, it was making revenue somehow. So, <laughs> and, I mean, I, I assume like games and places have to pay to set up shop in the Oasis. I think that's what the book said. Where like you, like companies pay to be in the Oasis and accessible to the Oasis and stuff like that. So, I don't. I don't blame the movie for not like getting into the nitty gritty, like the revenue streams. But <laughs> that's. Oh, I remember another little thing that kind of rubbed me wrong. There's that scene where they blow up his aunt's house and that mm-hmm. whole column. And like four seconds later, he's kidnapped by uh, Artemis. And then like, he's totally forgotten that his aunt just died. Yeah. I guess they have like a not not great relationship. So he wasn't like that broken up about it. Um, I guess that's something the book touches on a little more, but he has kind of mixed feelings. He's like, yeah, it's sad she's dead. But like, I was not, (laughs) you know, terribly close with her or my abusive step uncle or whatever. And they did kind of that was another kind of pacing issue where they did kind of just blow by that in the movie but yeah but overall really really good movie um yeah it was lots of food for thought with with vr and sort of how i don't know like how these big tech tech companies are very powerful uh, I because IOI in this movie is just like a big, it's like a version of a Google or a Facebook, or you know, it's a big tech company. Yeah. Um, I don't, we don't really know what all they, but they've become also like a police, like a private police force, you know, and a they and I a was private almost, jail I was system. Like, kind of weirded like, out at the very end of the movie when like the cops come and arrest him. I'm like, oh yeah. wow, I thought he like kind of ran the <laughs> the police with like a local security force or something. It, it seems so weird to me that like actual cops would show up because like the government is not mentioned yeah. at all <laughs> up until that point. Until then you're like, oh, I guess there are still cops and, you know, <laughs> the world isn't totally run by corporations. Yeah, it was, it was a little hard to figure. But I guess those are things like they really don't focus on that. It's kind of tertiary. It's all around the edges and you – but yeah, I, I guess also like in the book – I assume things were a little a little different or um I don't know they didn't really touch on the government that much I mean probably a little more than they did here but it, it certainly wasn't like a main point of focus yeah more of a corporate dystopian future than, than yeah, anything definitely. which you know I mean I, I guess I could see it happening it's not outside the realm of possibility that you know, I, you know we, we see a lot of privatization of you know things like prisons in our our own era. Of all the dystopias we're moving towards, I think a corporate one seems the most probable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that or like another world war yeah, or something. You just never know. Um, I mean, truth is stranger than fiction in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah, thanks for listening. Um, let, let us know what you thought of Ready Player One, uh, whether you just saw the movie or read the book. And uh, we'll be back next week. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Overworld. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care.
Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group, and I have a new podcast here on Podcast One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app. At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying. And the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.